Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Uh, so today I'm going to be interviewing storyteller Matthew Clickstein, and we're going to be talking about his latest book, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, as well as his long history with the Whitney High Kids. Uh, we're also going to be talking about one of his favorite kids' books, uh, The Butter Battle Book by Dr. Seuss. Uh, but first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. And since this podcast is the first one out for 2021, it did seem appropriate to have a poem about starting a new year, whatever your thoughts about the year we're leaving behind. Uh, this one is called Promise, and it was written by Jackie Kay. Promise. Remember. The time of year when the future appears like a blank sheet of paper, a clean calendar, a new chance. On thick white snow you vow fresh footprints, then watch them go with the wind's hearty gust. Fill your glass, here's to us, promises made to be broken, made to last. Dream Gardens is sponsored by the Remember Reading Podcast. Do you remember those children's books you loved to read and reread for hours on end, and maybe still do? Books like Charlotte's Web, Goodnight Moon, Amelia Bedelia, or The Bridge to Terabithia? Find out the real stories behind these beloved classics and more in the Remember Reading Podcast. In each episode of Remember Reading, you'll hear from award-winning authors like Meg Cabot, Catherine Patterson, Lewis Sacker, and others as they delve into the story behind each story. Whether you're a teacher, librarian, writer, illustrator, or just someone who loves children's books, discover the magic behind your favorite kidlet at rememberreading.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My guest today is Matthew Clickstein. A writer who's developed projects across multiple platforms, including nonfiction, filmmaking, theater, and comic books. And his latest project is the middle grade book, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World. You can find his website at www.matthewclickstein.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now, as I mentioned, your uh, latest book uh, is titled uh, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World. Can you talk a little bit of what that book is? Certainly. It actually just came out uh, a week ago from uh, the time that we're talking here, uh, September 28th. Uh, it came out through Schiffer Publishing, an imprint of theirs, actually, Schiffer Kids. And uh, it, as you said, is a middle grade reader. So it's technically for readers the ages 8 to 12. Uh, but like a lot of the great books that I read growing up, Roald Dahl, Judy Bloom, uh, the Phantom Tollbooth, uh, Shel Silverstein, certainly Dr. Seuss, which I know we'll be talking about today. I'd like to think of the book as more than that and being transgenerational, something that uh, older readers can enjoy as well. And certainly we do hope that educators, teachers, uh, older brothers and sisters, babysitters, and uh, parents will, will get a chance to read it and enjoy it, uh, whether they're reading it to their children or uh, reading it even for themselves. Uh, it is a very unique book. We believe it's the first book for younger readers that stars an entire group of young people with developmental disabilities. Of course, there's been many books over the years uh, where there's maybe one character or two who uh, might be in a wheelchair or might be autistic or something along those lines. But we're, we're quite certain this is the first time where there's an entire group and that they all have very different uh, disabilities. Uh, some of them, their disabilities are intersectional. So there's a character, for example, who lives with blindness. Um, slight mental retardation. Uh, he also has diabetes. Um, and uh, these characters are also based on a real band that exists called the Kids of Whitney High uh, that I've worked with for over the last 20 years. They were based out of a special ed music program at an actual school called Whitney High School in East Los Angeles. They have been around uh, since the late 80s in different incarnations. So they had different lineups according to who was in the class. But as of the early 2000s, it kind of stayed the same group of Kids of Whitney High members, uh, even though most of them are well into their 40s now. They you know, have still played and performed under the name the Kids of Whitney High, very much like the Beastie Boys or the Beach Boys or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, a lot of bands, they have the name boys or, or girls or whatever in their, in, their, uh, in their band name. So the Kids of Whitney High are kind of the same sort of thing. 
yeah, I, I've really enjoyed working with them over the years. I've made movies with them. I've done writing projects with them. And at a point, I thought it might be a great idea to do a children's book or a book for younger readers uh, based on some of the adventures that I've had with the kids of Winnie High and some of their thoughts and philosophies and message that they put out through their music and through just a lot of what they do and who they are as people. I actually wrote the book proposal for this almost nine years ago, and it took me a very long time to find a publisher that was interested Um, We could talk about this maybe a little bit later, but unfortunately, it still remains very, very difficult to get books like this or movies or uh, other projects like that out that deal with the disabled community. It's just something that a lot of people find taboo. It makes them nervous. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, Even in this day and age where there's a lot of so-called social reckoning going on, uh, the disabled community still is really being left out of a lot of the conversation. So I thought it was important to bring that to younger readers, to bring that to children's literature. The kids of Winnie High themselves, with whom I remain very close, uh, they consulted on it. So we really wanted to make sure that there was maximum authenticity in the representation. And indeed, at the end of the book, there's an interview with one of the kids of Winnie High members um, that I conducted where he's talking about why a book like this is important and why you know that kind of authentic representation is important. And, uh, you know, otherwise it is, it's, it's not a, it's not a soapbox. Um, it is a fun book. It's an entertaining book. The kids of Winnie High themselves are very ebullient and gregarious and they like to make a lot of jokes and have a lot of fun. There's a lot of antics in the book. It opens with a food fight. Um, and there's a lot of other things like that going on as well. So although there's some important messaging in there, it is still at the end of the day, a really fun and rambunctious story about a fun and rambunctious group of people. When did you uh, first uh, come in contact with these, uh, well, at the time, kids? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I first met the kids at Whitney High uh, my freshman year of college, actually. I was going to film school at USC, the University of Southern California. Um, I'd always been very interested in outsider art, outsider music. I'd worked with uh, the special ed program at my junior high school. I had friends that had disabilities of various kinds. Um, I volunteered a lot. It was just a community that I felt very comfortable with and was very interested in, um, both artistically and otherwise. And in the same uh, week, my first uh, one of my first weeks of college, two different people played me a Kids of Whitney High album, and I absolutely loved it. At the time, this was before Amazon and, and social media, that kind of thing wasn't really getting going yet. This was 1999. So I was actually having a lot of trouble finding one of their albums to buy. They didn't have it in any of the stores I went to. So I found the website, the Kids of Whitney High website, and I emailed them just to see, hey, is there a way I can get an album? And their teacher who runs the band, Michael Monaghan, he saw that I had a USC email address and said, hey, you're at USC. We're right down the street. Why don't you stop by class sometime? And indeed, I did that. And they really were just a few miles from USC. It was just completely serendipitous. I sat in on a class. I had a great time watching them. Uh, do uh, some music performing and talking about music and also their lives in general. But, you know, very creative, kind of informal group, uh, a really fun music class. And after that, I just became hooked. And, you know, anyone who went to film school with me will remember this. But basically, I spent the next four years at USC doing whatever I could to work the kids with me high into almost any project I worked on. I made short documentaries about them. I made videos with them that were fictional. I would even write about them in other classes that I had in, in art history classes. I'd write essays about them and talk about, uh, you know, how they were part of the legacy of things like Florence Foster Jenkins and Daniel Johnston and uh, other groups like that. And I just I don't really know why I just became really passionate about the kids of Whitney High. And slowly but surely, I started becoming very involved in their lives. They became involved with mine and became very close to their families. They'd invite me to their you know nieces, cancineras and that kind of thing. And I was really opening my eyes to a lot of different kinds of cultures overall, not just the disabled community. Uh, It's a very diverse group. And, uh, you know, they lived all over the Los Angeles area. So I I just became intoxicated with the group and uh, I started helping them get shows. I kind of became a bit of a manager in some ways. Um, And a little later down the road, I actually uh, put together a tour for them going from Los Angeles to Seattle and back. We were able to raise some money to do that. And we made a documentary about that uh, act your age, the kids of Whitney high story uh, that's played, you know, just through special venues and, and some online things and such over the years. So I, I just, I, I really couldn't tell you what it is. It's something uh, ineffable, but I, I, the kids of Whitney high have been just a big part of my life uh, for the last 20 plus years. And um, even when I'm, I don't live in Los Angeles anymore, I actually left in 2009 where they're based out of, but anytime I'd go back and visit with them or go to shows and I kept helping them with stuff kind of remotely or I've talked with them over the phone and, and so forth. And they knew I was trying to put together this kid's book 
and they were really a big part of it. Um, so we would just discuss things over the phone and so forth. And, um, you know, here we are. Now, have you seen, because you said you, about 20 years that you've known them, right? And uh, have you seen, um, I know you, you said before they had some trouble getting this published. Have you seen uh, some changes in attitude, uh, maybe not as far as uh, they should be? Because, again, like you said, you had some, still had some resistance to publishing this. But uh, in that 20 years, is there a little bit more understanding from some uh, of the public anyway? Uh, you know, I, I, I have personally seen some changes happen. I, as you say, it's certainly not enough. I don't have a quote-unquote disability myself per se. Uh, there's certain things actually I think I've just never been diagnosed for, uh, so you never know. And, and what we talk about in the book even is, and a lot of the kids at Whitney High members have talked about this, is even what it means to have a disability. One of the kids at Whitney High members has opined in the past, if you live in Los Angeles and you're not bilingual, that's a disability. It's very difficult in some places of Los Angeles to get around if you don't speak both English and Spanish. Hmm. Uh, they've talked about, you know, a very short person in some ways is disabled, a very tall person in some ways is disabled. So what does a dis disability even mean? But as far as what maybe the mainstream uh, concept of disability is, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen little changes here or there just in working with the kids and certainly traveling around with them and helping them with shows and such that's happened uh, where, where there's things that have made, made uh, you know, certain venues and such a little bit more accessible um, with wheelchair ramps and, and that kind of thing. But overall, it, it's still there's still a long way to go. And it has been a little disappointing and frustrating for me and for some of the kids that would be high members and even. Um, some of the people with disabilities that I've talked to just in the last few months in prepping for this book, uh, particularly people who are in Hollywood or trying to get in Hollywood, people who have been on certain television shows and such who have disabilities, some of them quite severe, uh, who are really trying, like the kids that we need high, uh, not only to just you know lead their lives, but they they very much aspire to be in films in television, in music, performers, and have a lot to say and a lot that they want to do. And it's still very closed off to them. Uh, and, I, and I've spoken with people even just in the last couple of weeks who have said that, that there are challenges that remain. And, and some of the quote-unquote changes that we've, we've perceived or seen or that have been written about newspapers or magazines even in the last few months are, remain rather superficial and a bit of window dressing, kind of checking a box off. Okay, see, we did what we could to help out people with disabilities. We've done our due diligence. And reality is, is there's still a lot more that need, does need to be done. Even with, you know, an example that sometimes surprises some of my friends that uh, might not have disabilities per se, uh, we're, we're surprised to hear me say, even with this book, Kids of Winning Junior High Take Over the World, I'm very proud of it. I think it's going to be a big help in opening up people's eyes uh, who might not have disabilities. And people who do have disabilities, I think it'll be great for them to see themselves authentically portrayed in a book like this. But at the same time, because the publisher is quite small, uh, we didn't have the resources for an audiobook. And it's a, a little sad to me that um, you know somebody who might be blind would have trouble reading this book because there's not an audiobook version. We've even talked about trying to get a Braille version going, and there's even a way of doing the pictures through Braille so that basically the lines of the pictures would be, you know, would would sort of be textured in a way so that you can actually feel the pictures. And we we have been trying to have discussions with the Braille Institute and such about this, but uh, though I've worked with very large publishers and very large media companies in the past on other projects. With this one, as I said, we kind of had to go with 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 who we could go with on it. Um, Schiffer's been great, but they are limited, and so we were not able to do an audiobook yet. But I'm hoping that we can to make it more accessible to somebody who might not be able to read it in a traditional way. And those are the kinds of things that a lot of people wouldn't even think about. Um, that yeah, you, you know, to make the book accessible, there needs to be an audiobook version or a braille version. Um, so it's just little things like that that somebody who might not have. Um, that that kind of challenge wouldn't even think about and that we're hoping to sort of open up more to people who don't have those disabilities who are making a lot of these choices and decisions for the rest of us to say, hey, you have to think about about that, too. I was just talking the other day with a good friend of mine who is a, a great activist. He's been doing a lot of work even in the last few weeks around the country, socially distanced, of course, but helping with a lot of marches and things going on with nonviolence and and uh, uh, gun safety and that kind of thing. He was involved in a mass shooting, sadly, out here in Dayton, Ohio, about a year ago. So he, he really knows uh, that world very well. 
and he's been going around talking about it. And I actually said to him, I said, you know, are you, when you're doing some of these marches and whatnot, are you considering that not everybody's able to walk and some people might need some help with wheelchairs or, or canes or so forth. And he gave me this look like, wow, I didn't even think about that. And we had a discussion about it. And I, you know, had suggested that he might want to reach out to certain organizations to get some more information and, and that kind of thing. So even a guy who's doing a lot of really great work with activism right now and is very much needed, is getting a lot of press and, and working a lot in the media about this and it's been great you know even he i had to say hey don't forget the people with disabilities who might have some trouble you know going on these marches who might want to be involved and so we we need to be thinking about that even while we're dealing with and discussing and talking about trying to make waves in some of these other kind of socio-political uh realms that are going on right now now this particular book is aimed at uh younger readers though though, like you said and and i perfectly agree uh, a, a book even though we we say it's it's for this particular age a good book is good enough for for all ages really uh but for for those particular young readers what do you think you really want them to to get to take away uh from reading this book that's a really good question and you know there's obviously a lot that i hope that they take away from it even just something down to enjoying reading which i think is really important and being entertained laughing and just having a good time while reading it i mean that's definitely a big part of of why i decided to do this book and i had so much fun writing it that um, you know, I hope that they have a lot of fun reading it. So that's very important for me. And I think, and I think that even if it was just that, that would be an important reason to write a book. Sometimes it's good just to have something that you're just enjoying and, and that's making you feel comfortable. Especially if you're a younger person, especially right now, there's so much fear and anxiety and and unpredictability that you know. I, I think that you know we all need, but especially younger people deserve and need you know media and entertainment books that are just for for good old fun. Uh, that maybe they don't even need to be, you know, thinking about some of these larger issues we're talking about. That said, uh, those larger issues are certainly integrated into there as well. And uh, I would hope that a person without a so-called disability would maybe have a better understanding of people with disabilities, a better understanding of how to interact with people with disabilities um, so that they can be more comfortable doing so and, and so that they can make the persons that they're interacting with feel a little bit more comfortable. A person with disability who might be reading this book, I definitely wrote it for them as well. And I hope that they see themselves portrayed in a very authentic, realistic, and genuine and nuanced way and can say, hey, there I am. I, you know, that that's very much like me or I've dealt with that or I've gone through that. Or, I know what it's like to get shots in the stomach for my di- diabetes or I know what it's like, um, you know, to deal with cerebral palsy and, and so forth. So I hope that, that that happens as well. And finally, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying originally, there's a lot in the book about the power of positive thought. And the power of producing and creating, which is a big, big message of the kids of Whitney High. These are people who, aside from their physical and mental and emotional disabilities, um, they also come from a very poor background. They come from not the best area of East Los Angeles. Um, a lot of them have gone through some childhood trauma and so forth. Uh, a lot of them are, are financially destitute in different ways. So they really have many, many, many challenges that they've been dealing with their entire lives. And yet when you go to a Kids of Whitney High show, when you listen to a Kids of Whitney High song, it is pure jubilance. And what they've done with their lives is they've turned some of their trauma, they've turned some of their challenges into positivity. And they're using creative expression and they're using the joy that they have for life overall and when they're with each other and making music to overcome those challenges and obstacles it's not about bitterness it's not about toxicity or negativity it's not about victimizing themselves it's not about you know feeling feeling sad by what's going on certainly they feel angry and sad and those are valid emotions as well and some of their songs do deal a lot with anger and so forth also mm. But for the most part, they're using their creative expression to overcome a lot of these challenges. And I definitely wanted that to be a big part of the book. There's even a section of the book that talks about the importance of meditation. And I know that a lot of younger readers, uh, might uh, that might be a little difficult for them to understand or even difficult to do. Um, but I wanted to talk about that in there and, and that, hey, you know, have you thought about meditation? And one of the characters is discussing it and why he meditates and what that means and, and what it does for him. And I really wanted there to be a sense of that kind of, you know, finding positive ways to deal with fears and anxieties. And frankly, like I said, I wrote the proposal for this eight or nine years ago. Hmm. I sold the concept to Schiffer two years ago. So it really wasn't until the last few months when the lockdown happened that some of these themes that I'm talking about became particularly prescient and important. And now I would say that whether you have a disability or not, whether you're interested in that part of the of the book or not, 
I think that for younger readers, there's something there to help them through what we're all dealing with right now and to deal with some of their anxieties and fears and angers and frustration, especially when society itself and a lot of what we're seeing on uh, TV and so forth, it can be very, very scary and very negative and very toxic, very toxic on social media. And I, I wanted to create an alternative to that. And that you don't have to just, you know, embrace your rage. You don't have to embrace your fear. You can let it go. You can meditate. You can make music. You can, you know, spend time with friends, whether you're talking to them over the phone or Zoom or whatever it is. And just other ways of dealing with fear and anxiety that I don't think is getting out there as much as it could or should, especially the younger people right now who are being bombarded by fear and anger and anxiety. Um, so that's something I really, really, truly hope comes out of this um, and that people will see with this book. Find the thing that brings you joy, whatever it may be, music or otherwise, and uh, and lean into that. Yeah, I, you know, Joseph Campbell said, "Finding your bliss," and I think that there's something to that. And you know, not a lot of people might remember who Joseph Campbell is or know who he is. Certainly not younger readers, but uh, you know, he's he's one of the great folklorists who passed some time ago and inspired people like George Lucas to create Star Wars and really help to kind of find a way of, of universalizing, generalizing, just storytelling overall, and had a big impact on many of the filmmakers and writers and musicians uh, of the 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond. And you know his motto, his maxim was finding your bliss. And I think there's something to that. And whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, whether you have a disability or not, you know, that is something that we should all be thinking about and considering. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not uh, advocating being naive. I'm not advocating, you know, just completely ignoring problems. I mean, the kids at Whitney High, they have significant problems constantly that they're dealing with. And, you know, we've had to help them out very, very explicitly in, in times. I mean, they, they know what it's like to have serious challenges in their life. They're not ignoring them, but there's just ways of kind of dealing with it. And, and one thing that I say that I believe is in the book as well is you can't always control the wave, but you can control how you surf it. And I think especially right now, that's an important lesson for younger readers to grasp and to know that, you know, you might not have full control over your life right now. There might be a lot of things going on you can't control, but you can control your attitude about it, your perspective about it. And that, that's a lot of what we're trying to do with this book and what the kids of Winnie High have, have been doing for the last 30 years with their music. Good advice for adults as well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did want to ask you a question on your website. I, I, I read that you started writing seriously at a very young age. You actually wrote your first novel at 13, and honestly, I don't even know what I was doing at 13. <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering, somebody who's been doing this for a lo very long time, what advice would you give to young writers who are just starting out and trying to figure out what to do? You know, whenever somebody asks me that, regardless of their age, I always say the same thing, which is, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world. And it's the biggest secret that all the writers, uh, you know, tend to, to tend to keep from everybody else. But I'm going to give it to you right now, which is just start writing. <laughs> you just have to do it. Um, you, you know, I like to think of it as, again, it's, it's your attitude about it. Just even changing some of your, your language when you're talking about writing. You don't have to write today. You get to write today. You get to write today. Just waking up and being excited about it. Oh, my gosh, I get to write today. I, I don't have to go to school. I don't have to, to, to deal with some kind of activity. I'm not doing some kind of family get-together. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have some other engagement. I have an hour or two or a full day or an afternoon where I can do whatever I want. And uh, I get to write. How exciting is that? Just, and just being energized by it. Just sitting down and actually getting it done and, and really focusing on it and making it happen. Turn off your phone. Turn off the TV. Turn off the screen. Uh, close your door and just sit down and let it happen. And it really is very much like meditation. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the problems that a lot of people have, young or old, with writing is just getting started. Um, and they're they're talking about wanting to write and this idea that they have, but they're scared to do it. And you know, the the fear of the blank page and all these other uh, empty adages that I, you know really I, I find distasteful because you know it just keeps people from writing and it just gives them an excuse to to keep from writing. And again, it's, you know, don't think of it as a chore. Don't think of it as an errand. Don't think of it as something you have to do, that you have this great idea, but, oh, man, now you have to sit down and actually write it boring or, oh, this is hard or whatever. Just start doing it. It really is the same as 
when you go to the gym or when you go for a run or when you go for a walk or, or something like that, you know, it, it, not everybody wants to wake up or, or in the afternoon go and, and, and work out or go for a run or go for a walk or even younger people who might not necessarily be going to the gym, but maybe, you know, are playing in a sport or doing, you know, ballet or something like that. You know, it can be scary. It, you, you're worried you're going to get hurt. You're worried you're going to fall. You're worried it's going to, you know, be a little painful. You're worried that you might get rejected. You're worried that you might have some difficulty doing it. Maybe the other kids in the class might make fun of you. There's a lot of reasons to not go to your ballet class or not go and play your football game or do your football uh, practice. But once you just make that decision, I'm going to go and do it, and you get there and your parents drop you off at the football practice or whatever it is, you know, then all of a sudden you get into it and you're doing it and you're enjoying it and an hour and a half goes by and you've done your, your, your football game or your football practice, your ballet or, or your theater show or your piano rehearsal or whatever it is. And so it really is just your attitude about it and your mindset. And for me, that, that would be my, my best advice is to, to not try to find excuses not to do it. And to not try to find all these different ways of, well, how can I write it? And, you know, let me read these books about it and let me take these classes about it and so forth. Those things can be very helpful, sure. But at the end of the day, it's up to you. No one else can do it for you. You have to sit down and start writing. And whether you're doing it with a pen and paper or you're doing it on the computer, you're doing it on a typewriter uh, or you're you're reading something into a speaker that you're recording so that someone else can transcribe it later or whatever it is – um, you need to just actually do it. And it really is like going to the gym or going for a run or going and playing a sport or going and getting ready to do your piano lesson or your theater show. Um, and I think that's the one thing. It's the simplest thing and the hardest thing at the same time. Very much like, again, funnily enough, meditation. Because I think, as you might know, um, even older people you know, have trouble. I mean, I have friends that are you know, in their, their 30s, 40s, 50s or older and they say, Matt, how do you meditate? You know, I, how do you just sit there for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes and do nothing? That's so hard. They come up with excuses. I don't have 20 minutes to, to meditate. Yes, you do. You have 20 minutes to meditate. If you have 20 minutes to look at your phone and, and to scroll around and look at memes, you have 20 minutes to sit and, and relax and do your meditation and release some of that cortisol and to, to, to have that physiological effect that, that meditation really does have. Um, and it's the same thing with writing. Uh, you know, and, and I really do believe that everybody has 20 minutes or half an hour, an hour here or there, maybe even daily to put aside to do the writing and just keep at it. And to understand, too, that very much like going to the gym or very much like playing the piano, it's a muscle that you have to uh, uh, stretch and, 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 and to really play with and to really flex. And it might be difficult for some people at first, certainly, especially younger readers who maybe younger writers who haven't really done a lot of writing yet. But to know and understand that it is going to be kind of hard at first. Maybe you do 15 minutes one day and then you do another 15 minutes the next day and then you do another 15 minutes the next day. And then all of a sudden you do 20 minutes and then all of a sudden you do another 20 minutes and all of a sudden you're doing an hour. And then all of a sudden you're not even keeping track anymore. You're just writing and writing and writing and you're really having a lot of fun with it. So, you know, just let it happen. Know that it's going to be hard. Nobody's going to be a good writer right away. I mean, even Stephen King, one of our greatest writers of all time. I mean, he talks about all the time struggling with writing. He's written entire novels that he never published because they, they weren't good enough for him. And he said, you know, I wrote this entire thing and it's still something I don't want to put my name on. It's still something I don't want to publish. Um, so even somebody like a Stephen King and, you know, there's stories like that with probably every single writer. I certainly have had those problems myself. We all have. So to know that it's it's not going to be perfect right out of the gate, but you have to just sit down and do it or it's not going to happen. And soon you're going to have this great idea that's either going to go away and fly away into the ether or, you know, a year is going to go by or five years is going to go by or 10 years is going to go by. And you're going to be getting older and you're going to look back and say, boy, I wish I just sat down and actually did the writing. And I know way too many people who have that story, smart people, hardworking people dedicated, focused, disciplined people, people who have their own businesses, people who have taught classes, people who are very successful, and they've been talking about their book or their screenplay or their play that they've been wanting to write for five or ten years, some of them I know. I know multiple people who are like that. And I've even told them, I've said, why don't you just sit down and write it? Why don't you get it done? And they find excuses not to do it. And, uh, you know, that that's sad. And especially when you're young, this is the time to really get going with it, just like with learning a foreign language. Or learning the piano. I, I regret that I never learned a musical instrument. I mean, I hope to do so one day. And I've been messing around a little bit with the ukulele over the last year or two. 
Um, but you know, I, I, I do, that is one regret of mine is that I didn't start playing a musical instrument when I was younger. Cause boy, if I had started around the same time that I started writing when I was 12 or 13, uh, you know, I, I would have been playing an instrument for 20 plus years now and I'd be pretty dang good at it probably. And who knows what would have happened with that. And, and, it, and it saddens me that I never really did that. So if, if you're a young reader or a young writer and you're listening to this or a parent who's, who's thinking about helping their kid, uh, you know, get into writing. That That is the advice I would give is you have to just sit them down and start doing it. And it's going to be hard at first and it's going to maybe be a little boring and it's going to be frustrating. You're going to write something that you might not necessarily like, but you have to just keep going and get it done because you're going to flex that muscle and you're going to get stronger. And soon you're going to be better and better and better at it, just as you would with with working out or going for a run or or any other thing that you're trying to accomplish playing the piano. I think that's very good advice. That's very good advice. Now, the uh, book that you picked as one of your own particular favorite uh, books for young readers is the Butter Battle book uh, by Dr. Seuss, and this was originally published in 1984. Uh, it's probably a book that's familiar to, to, to many readers, but for those who haven't had a chance to read it, or maybe it's been a long time since they actually sat down and, and looked through the book, can you talk a little bit of what that book is about? Uh, yes, uh, on a sophisticated adult level, it is, <laughs> uh, I hate to say it, but it is a children's book, more or less, about the unfortunate reality of mutual assured destruction, MAD. And certainly that was a big issue during the Cold War when it was uh, written and published uh, in the 80s. And uh, it deals a little bit with, with things like the Berlin Wall and um, strife and conflict and, and the idea of war. And really, in Dr. Seuss's uh, inimitable, uh, sardonic way that he, you know, is one of the main reasons that we all love him, again, whether you're a young person or an older person, uh, he's kind of poking some fun at the concept of mutual assured destruction and poking some fun uh, at, at the Berlin Wall and, and walls of, of all sorts and the idea of of war itself, very much like uh, Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film. And it is about two different groups of people. Or creatures, they're they're humanoid. Let's just say that they're people, uh, but they they are kind of Doctor Seussian type characters, the Ukes and the Zooks, uh, the Ukes and the Zooks. The story begins with a grandfather telling his son um, how they got to where they are, basically. And the grandfather and the son, our, our protagonists, are the Ukes, and uh, they look a certain way, and uh, they eat their uh, their bread with the butter on top. The right way of eating the butter uh, on bread is is always with the butter on top. That's what the Ukes do. Now the Zooks on the other side of the wall, that, who look actually a lot like the Ukes, um, they're 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 identical in almost every way except for one very very important uh, difference, which is that the Zooks, well, they eat their bread and butter the wrong way. They eat their their butter underneath their bread. You know, gravity. Be hecked. Uh, I don't know how that's even possible, but let's just say that that's what's done in this Dr. Seuss world. And according to the Ukes, that's the wrong way to eat your bread and butter. And this has caused a war that's been going on for at least a generation or two, it seems like, from the story. Um, and basically what ends up happening is the grandfather is uh, recounting to his grandson how he, as a younger person, was a soldier in the war of the Ukes and the Zooks, separated by a wall very reminiscent of something like, say, the Berlin Wall, and how basically the Ukes kept creating new weapons to kind of keep the Zooks away, and the Zooks were creating similar weapons to keep the Ukes away, and, and they're just keeping this war going, and it's all over the right way of eating the bread and butter. And so very much like the Hatfields and the McCoy, or uh, the Montagues and the Capulet and Romeo and Juliet, uh, it's these two warring sides that uh, are warring for a reason that's a bit silly, a bit cartoonish, and a bit Dr. Seussian. But sadly, as the book continues and as the grandfather is telling the rest of his story to his grandson, the weapons that they're developing get bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier and more and more destructive. And should I give the spoiler alert of what happens at the end or should I stop there at what happens at the end? Actually, I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, actually, the, the ending is kind of interesting in that it doesn't really have an ending. 
it leaves it on an ambiguous note. It does. And I guess the best way of doing it without giving too much of a spoiler alert, because it's such a great story and I hope everyone will read it. And uh, is that it, it, it ends with essentially a weapon um, that is, is the definitive weapon. Both sides have it. And there's a question as far as uh, who's going to drop it. Uh, basically who's going to be pressing the button and in so doing, dropping you know the weapon that's going to be the biggest weapon of all time and obviously there's echoes there too again the cold war and really war in general and just the idea of the the two different sides both think that they're right the two different sides are fighting for what they believe in even if it's something rather silly and 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 asinine like uh you know what what side of the the bread should it be buttered on and um the fact that it does end with well well who's going to press the button um, so obviously a lot of resonance and relevance to the eighties and certainly a lot of relevance and resonance even now and in the, you know, back to the 1950s with, with fears about, uh, nuclear Holocaust and so forth. So, um, and you know, and it's great cause it is still a, a picture book and it's Dr. Seuss. It's not very long. Uh, it's, it's, it's written very much like a cat in the hat or, Oh, the places you'll go or some of the other great books of Dr. Seuss, but this is more like in the lines of the Lorax where the Lorax similarly was obviously for, you know, more or less quote unquote for children. The pictures are very colorful and, and effulgent and it's very cartoonish. And yet it's dealing with another very important issue at that time was environmentalism. Um, certainly it's an important issue now as well, but uh, back then that was still kind of a new thing to talk about. So, you know, it's one of the things that I really like about Dr. Seuss and people like Dr. Seuss is sort of like what I was trying to do with the kids at Whitney junior high take over the world. Um, it's a fun and entertaining, colorful story and book. And yet, you know, when you read between the lines and maybe something when parents feel like their children are, are, are getting older, maybe you can talk with them about it. Hey, you know, do you know what this really means? And they can kind of talk about certain things going on in society or certain history. And, and that was something that certainly my mom did with me when she was reading me this book when I was a younger boy. Uh, so it's um, something very nostalgic for me. In fact, I actually had not read it in a very long time, but I used to read it all the time when I was a kid. It was one of the books that my mom would would, uh, would, would read with me when I was a little boy. It's interesting thinking about Dr. Seuss. I mean, it, even if you hadn't read this book before and you someone started reading to you, I think you'd know right away that this is a Dr. Seuss book uh, just because of the you know, it doesn't sound a Dr. Seuss book sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Yes, and, and I think you're right. It, it deals with a serious uh, topic. At the same time, uh, like I, the weapon that stands out for me, the uh, Kickapoo Kid loaded with Pooadoo powder. Um, so, you know, when you're a young kid listening to that, you know, you're, you're not thinking of the serious side of it, uh, but it's something that as you 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 read on and get older, it's sort of the the meaning. Uh, deepens and you see more things that you maybe you didn't see when you're just a young child. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that that's true of a lot of Dr. Seuss books. And um, there were, uh, when I was growing up, those were the kinds of books that my mom and my dad really gave to me or read to me. Uh, both of them were also really into Shel Silverstein, for example. And there's another great example of somebody who was quite transgenerational. You can read a lot of his poems and children's books which you know even the drawings and such look like they're done by a child in some ways and certainly are more uh, driven towards uh, you know children's mindset and yet as you get older and you read them and you can see uh, the the lyricism and the the luminosity of them and and certainly some of them deal with even you know rather adult content and so forth or you know when you read something like uh, one of his really famous ones of course the giving tree um you know when you're a kid you know it's it's just a fun story and it's very comforting and there's something very beautiful and lovely and it's a bit of a fairy tale but as you get older you start having your own relationships and some of the themes and ideas in uh the the giving tree become much more um uh you know uh, palatable and palpable for you and you start connecting with it more you kind of go back and you can read it over and over and over again uh you know another great example of a book like that would be the little prince the uh saint exupery book which you know can be read by a very young person by themselves or, or you can read that to them um and yet as they get older um, that person can see, uh, you know, certain themes that they might not have really understood, you know, that, that are kind of woven into the text and woven into the prose and woven into the story. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love reading again and again books like, you know, these Dr. Seuss books and, and Little Prince and the Phantom Tollbooth. You know, I think they're really great 
quote unquote children's book, I almost hesitate to call them that, are those ones that you can read them as a kid and enjoy them. And they're a lot of fun and they're colorful and they're funny and they're strange and there's adventures and great characters. But as you get older, you can also kind of, they change as you change. And I really love that. Some of these books I really have read over and over and over again. And uh, those are, those are some of the best books and connect us all together. And, and when there's a four or five year old who can read a book or who could be read a book um, and enjoy it just as much as their 70 or 80 year old grandparent or great grandparent for different reasons, even, I mean, that, that is an enduring book. And that's, I think why Dr. Seuss has lasted and will continue to last her again, Shel Silverstein or um, some of these other authors that we're talking about. I know when I, whenever I have somebody t- uh, talking about a picture book, uh, I, I bring up the point again and again that uh, um, it was sometimes we just think of picture books as you know parents read to young children, but you know uh, even as a teacher, I would use picture books uh, with older kids, middle grade, even high school kids. You know, sometimes to teach things like plot or just things like that. And this seems like a good example of a picture book that certainly gr- great for young kids, but it's like a lot of really great. A book, a good book is a good book for anybody. So this seems like a good example of a book that um, designed for kids, but showing to older kids, high school kids, adults is still very relevant. And sometimes we get caught in, you know, categorizing books as this is just a kid's book. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that there is something there, especially with Dr. Seuss, where the, the imagery is almost cinematic in a way. There is a certain kind of movement in his choice of compositions and tableau. Uh, there's a scene in the Butter Battle book that I love um, that I was just when I was rereading it again, um, just that shows kind of what you're talking about with with how you don't even need the words necessarily to understand what's happening. Um, with the way that he chooses a certain angles or perspectives. But the one I'm talking about is toward the end um, when the ultimate weapon is being shown. You have uh, our our protagonist, the Ukes, have their weapon out and they're fully formed and you can see the Ukes themselves holding it and, and it's the entire body of the Ukes. And then on the other side, you see just the arm of the Zook holding a similar weapon. And it's just kind of popping out of the page in a way. And so there's just this sense of something's emerging that, you know, the the ukes are all set and here they are and they have their weapon. Hooray. But then, uh oh, right around the corner, there's something else that's about to happen that's going to change the game a little bit. And I just love Dr. Seuss's choice in how he drew uh, the zook just putting out his arm. You only see his arm holding the weapon. And it is this sense of impending doom that uh, is very smart. And, you know, we have to remember that someone like Dr. Seuss, I mean, he's coming from the world of single panel uh, comic strips and political comic strips, uh, you know, the, the kind of thing that would be a precursor to somebody like Gary Larson in The Far Side. So he knew, Dr. Seuss knew how to use, um, again, the, the compositions and, and the mise-en-scene, so to speak, and, and what's in the picture to tell the story. So I very much agree with you that uh, even without the text, you probably could understand quite well what's going on. And that is the mark of uh, a very adept storyteller, writer, and illustrator. I can't imagine Dr. Seuss, I, I don't know, this This might have happened, I don't know too much about his life, but I can't imagine Dr. Seuss, for example, writing for somebody else to draw or drawing for somebody else who's written for him. I would imagine that maybe happened a few times since he did so many different things over his very illustrious, uh, lengthy career. But, you know, as you said, Dr. Seuss had a certain signature style and his writing and his illustration um, were really married in a way that it was one and the same. So it's no wonder that he was uh, such a genius at creating artwork, even that told the story on its own. He was such a inveterate storyteller, consummate storyteller that uh, whether it's a picture or whether it's the text itself, boom, you know exactly what's going on. I think Susian is actually a, uh, an adjective to describe a particular type of both visual and I think both a, a verse style as well. If you say that, um, people have an immediate image in mind of what you're talking about. Sure. No. And, and uh, you know, what, what, uh, what uh, an amazing legacy that he's left and the fact that uh, he's told these stories that uh, are entertaining and amusing and funny and his, his, the way that he played with, with language um, and created new words and words that we use today. There's actually 
uh, speculation. I, I did a book on so-called nerd culture some years ago, and I sp- and I actually interviewed somebody who works for the Oxford English Dictionary, and I interviewed a few a number of other people as well. But it no one really knows where the word nerd came from. But it is possible. Uh, Dr. Seuss used a word that was similar to nerd in one of his earlier books, and it, that and uh, if that's where nerd came from, he was the first person to use the word nerd. Now he wasn't using it in the way that we would come to know it today, but it's possible he even invented the word nerd. And he certainly has played around with other words that we use today. And, and right away, you know, when you're talking about uh, the cat in the hat, or you're talking, or the, the fact that. For every time someone graduates from college or high school, uh, the typical gift is, oh, the places you'll go. You know, that, that means a lot. And, and that, that is a true legacy and that he has had such an impact on our society as a whole. And I, you know, I, I think that's very important. And I think, again, it connects us all. You can talk with somebody no matter where they're from, no matter what their culture is, no matter whether they have a disability or not. And it's very likely they've heard of Dr. Seuss. They're familiar with Dr. Seuss. They're fans of Dr. Seuss. You can talk about The Cat in the Hat. You can talk about some of these other books we're discussing. And uh, right there, you have a connection with somebody else that might be very different from you in a lot of ways. But you both know who Dr. Seuss is and what Cat in the Hat is and maybe even what the Butter Battle book is. And, and that's that's very, very important, especially in this day and age. They're timeless books, and um, and I'd say that, too, for the Butter Battle book. Unfortunately, I guess you could say that it's still a very timely uh, <laughs> yeah. book. Um, it'd be nice to get the point where it becomes an obsolete, I suppose, story. Uh, but that is not right now, anyway. Yeah, it's it's funny, too, because I, in, in rereading it for this podcast, I, I'm not going to say I'd forgotten. I just don't think I knew because I never, I don't think I'd ever bothered to check. But I, I think it's uh, quite, I, uh, you know, interesting that it came out in 1984 because certainly uh, there was a lot going on in 1984 in film and television. But also, you know, the big one is, is George Orwell's book, 1984. So, um, you know, it almost fits right in there with that kind of Orwellian mindset. And, and you know, what Orwell was talking about with, with his book, obviously he had written 1984 uh, about 50 years earlier, 30 years earlier. But still, uh, the fact that he was writing about 1984, then this Butter Battle book comes out in 1984. I just think there's a really lovely, almost kind of cosmic uh, connection there, um, especially again, since there were so many other films and books and, and uh, things like that that came out in 1984 that we can kind of look back on. And, and I think it's great that a Dr. Seuss book, a book, you know, quote unquote, for children, uh, is, is really part of that pantheon of, of 1984 media and entertainment that dealt with um, these these very, uh, you know, sophisticated topics, war and, and hate and intolerance and uh, kind of the stupidity of, of this, these kinds of things and bureaucracy. One of the things I really like about the Butter Battle book, in fact, is the idea of the, the bureaucrats who are running everything. They're kind of hidden away. I mean, while the the soldiers are out. The the Uke soldiers and the Zook soldiers are out and about. The 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 generals, the, the the leaders of the war are in this little house, this kind of shack, almost protected and away from everyone else and everything else. And in fact, um, their scientists are called the boys in the back room. So it's like they're they're just they're kind of away from everyone else and away from everything else. These scientists who are creating these weapons of mass destru- destruction are quite literally called the boys in the back room. Um, and there, there's something that is, uh, as you say, unfortunately, very timely uh, and timeless at the same time because it's it was timeless then, timely now, as far as the fact that the people who are, um, you know, waging these wars, the people who are keeping these wars going, the people who are creating the weapons for these wars, they're not necessarily the ones that are out there fighting in the wars or out there being affected by the wars in that way. And that's something that's gone on throughout the course of human history. Uh, that the people who are creating, waging, and, and running the wars are not necessarily the ones fighting in it. And that's that's one of the scariest aspects of, of war and conflict. So, um, you know, how amazing that Dr. Seuss was able to work in uh, such a concept into, you know, this kind of otherwise, on a superficial level, very silly children's book, as you say, you know, some of the weapons are dried chowder, you know, chowder soup and whatever, and uh, clam chowder and you know, meanwhile, at the same time. So, and I love that it's, it's the high and low of that. And I, and I love a lot of other, you know, uh, these, these products these, uh, of, of content, if you will, that are able to do both at the same time that can be uh, very funny and very silly and very cartoonish, but also dealing with 
these extremely intellectual and, and nuanced concepts like that. So, um, and that's why, again, I think that, you know, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a three-year-old could enjoy the Butter Battle book, but so could uh, a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. A PhD could enjoy the Butter Battle book, and, and so could somebody who's maybe uh, never been educated at all, and, and uh, that it would connect to them for very different reasons, perhaps, or maybe even the same reason. Um, so, you know, some of these themes are um, omnipresent in our lives and doesn't matter your education level or your ability level or where you're from, as I was saying earlier about uh, just Dr. Seuss books in general, is it really for everybody? And uh, I think that's something that's very important and why he's going to continue to last and last and last. Well, Matthew, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about your own book, the, uh, the Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, and I do hope you see an audio book for that at some point. And uh, thank you again for, you know, give me a chance to reread the Butter Battle book. It's been a long time since <laughs> I've read it, and to talk to me about it today. Sure. Thank you again, and uh, I hope everybody will give the Butter Battle book a chance who maybe hasn't haven't read it or, or maybe haven't read it in a long time. And I do also hope that people check out the Kids of Winnie Junior High Take Over the World. I will say, uh, in addition to some of the important messaging there and just the fun of the book, a portion of the profits also go to a nonprofit that have worked with the Kids of Winnie High and other people with disabilities over the last 50 years. It's called L.A. Goal. And uh, they've actually been hit quite hard by the pandemic um, and the lockdown as well. So uh, in uh, purchasing a copy of the Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, you're also uh, helping in a very direct and specific way with with that group, too. And I would hope that everybody can check out L.A. Goal on their website, lagoal.org, and see what it is that they do, especially if you're in that area and and might require some of the services that they offer if you want to volunteer help out. You can find Matthew's website at www.matthewclickstein.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.